folks once again live in greenwood bonjour shalom what's up and uh, how you living and how you living has a guest today how you living justin i'm living good as far as i know all right and justin's right now live in dallas and we will uh, hear more from him uh as we are live in effect in the fall here in seattle as well uh how you living Chaz? i'm doing pretty well i can't complain uh, I'm just thinking about Seattle's local elections uh, right now. Uh, so I guess we can jump straight into our first segment of callbacks. Uh, callbacks is how we normally start this show. It's an early uh, look back at anything we've talked about in previous episodes. So since you've got the election on your mind, that's been some topics of the last few. Uh, what do you got on an update as far as Seattle election goes, Chaz? Uh, so we talked about the mayoral race last week, and this week I want to talk about the citywide positions for Seattle City Council. Um, so citywide 8 and 9 are both up for election. Citywide 8 is between John Grant and Teresa Mosqueda, and they both seem like really good candidates, but it feels like John is focusing more on the progressive values of people who don't have all the access to different living things that they need and really hunkering down on local businesses for bringing developments into the city. And Teresa kind of wants to go more with uh, HALA, which is the housing uh, um, affordability and uh, livability agenda. And she feels like we need to build up on top of that. And what we're doing now is good, but not good enough. But it doesn't seem as, uh, I would say, as robust and as john grant wants to do it feels Teresa mosqueda feels like more of the same and john grant feels like he's like no we need to push a lot harder because only less people will be helped by this more people will be helped by him and i'm still trying to figure out if that is the case yeah that's that's uh and and that's like the important thing is uh you know we kind of get caught up on the mayoral side Mm -hmm. but um these city council positions they're very powerful here in the city as far as voting is where we're going to go what direction and then they actually end up being a breeding ground for future mayoral candidates in a lot of cases so indeed um we really have to understand kind of the livelihood of these people as city leaders going forward so and then there's Citywide 9, which is between Lorena Gonzalez and Pat Murakami. And Lorena Gonzalez is the incumbent, so she was voted back in uh, 2015, and she's been doing really well. She's a civil rights attorney, so her big thing is definitely with the refugee and immigrant par- um, families here and making sure that they don't get effed over by the Trump regime and all that. And Pat Murakami, she's a local business leader, and she lives in Mount Baker, which is in South Seattle. And we know that South Seattle has a lot of gentrification issues and a lot of Seattle's gentrification has been pushed down to there. So she's definitely fighting to be the voice of South Seattle in a way. But I anecdotally, from at least from my Facebook feed, I haven't heard the best things about uh, Pat Murakami, but I still need to do some research on that too before I make my final decision. But right now I am undecided on both. So I need to like dig deep. So I'll let you guys know next week what I came up with. And uh, yeah, and given that it's one week from Tuesday, the election is near. Um, And uh, any other callbacks you have before we uh, get some more information from our guests and get into this episode? 
Uh, no, I think that's all I really wanted to talk about for this one. Uh, just to let I you actually go. had a callback from uh, episode 35. <laughs> you, oh, you, sure. You know what? You're right. Uh, I forgot. Callbacks is an open forum to, <laughs> to all people in the room and on the broadcast. So uh, go well, ahead. Well, hey, I can only learn about Seattle, Washington. My, my wife wants us to move there at some point, so I, I need to be listening. Oh, yeah. okay, cool. So what's but, your callback? Uh, my callback was uh, episode 35. You guys were talking about how the partisan divide has gotten so bad, and you were asking some questions about that. And um, it was actually something that I've done some reading about. Okay. Are you familiar with uh, social capital? Uh, to some degree. Well, yeah. Right. Uh, fill us in on, on uh, your opinion on that or how it relates to your callback. All right. So sociologist Robert Putnam um, – released a book called Bowling Alone. It was his mm -hmm. big book on social capital it is, where he gathered evidence on how it affects different things. When you have high social capital, which means when you have high areas where people are able to trust each other intuitively and they know where they're coming from, oh, okay. things get a lot less legalistic. But anytime your social capital gets low, you have... Um, you have points where people start really nitpicking the rules because they rely less on each other and are less likely to assume that the other person means well. Okay. They go into, well, if I can't trust the people, then I have to trust the rules. And that almost gets it completely backwards because anytime you don't trust the people, rules rules are a good way to build that ground up. Mm-hmm. But without the benefit of the doubt that the other person isn't just trying to use the rules to screw you over, it becomes about how are they going to screw me with this, and you're too busy playing the defense game to actually be able to do anything. Um, this is actually this actually follows. There was an analysis done across uh, soccer leagues around the world, oh. and um, South Italy is infamous for. Uh, nitpicking rules and calling cheaters like there are full-on lawsuits and news stories over the scandals in soccer and it's kind of a constant thing for them and what it comes down to is that there is an extremely low amount of social trust whereas the same genetically group of people legal-wise group of people uh, in north italy don't have the same problems with their team oh interesting, interesting. Yeah, huh. I think I've heard that once about that's one of the reasons why uh, social programs work a lot better in Nor Norwegian countries and mm. and why they might not work as well here. I've heard some people make that argument that there's certain communities that don't have a lot of social capital with each other, so they want people to follow yeah. the law. So the the kind of inverse also uh, like reality based on what you're saying is if you can build social capital you can strengthen the relations of communities. So mm -hmm. that's yeah. yes, which has been something that I've tried to be doing, tried to direct my recent research into, and we can go into that later. For sure, I know I came here to talk about uh, former conservatism. Oh no, we can talk about whatever you want yeah. to. So okay. uh, with that, we will will close the segment that is known as callbacks in inner episode. Uh, I'm gonna take a stab at it and say 38. I think this is episode 38. So uh it's 37. It's no no, I think you're I think you're wrong this time. Oh goodness. So uh <laughs> I think 
it is officially episode 38 yeah okay so uh and uh yeah yeah see Chaz, now you're the one i got you doubting <laughs> yeah you, you you mentioned the wrong episode on a few episodes and all of a sudden we both doubt what number we're at uh moving so accidental gaslighting <laughs> exactly Indeed, yes. exactly oh, no. yeah that and we're just not keeping track of numbers well mm. um <laughs> moving forward uh introduce uh what you know of our guest and and let him or tell us about what why you brought him on chess uh yeah so i met justin on a friend's thread um we have a mutual friend who lives here in seattle and he talked about how he used to be a conservative and is now a liberal. And I kind of I'm really big on trying to find to understand how the other side thinks and why they feel the way they feel. So we're not just like vilifying them because we disagree with them. And mm-hmm. I felt it would be good to have him on so he could have our listeners know this is how I used to feel. And this is what changed my mind to what I feel now. But also talk about whatever issues that are plaguing us and uh, little insights that we need to know about the world that can come from his worldview living in what we would call a quote unquote red state. Yeah. OK. That's a that's a great thing. Well, uh, welcome, Justin. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so, uh, given that situation, um, kind of give us a, a, a rundown background, I guess. So like, what was your participation you consider as a conservative formally? So I was a survivalist. I actually did everything I could to help on Ron Paul's campaign in 2008. Mm, okay. Um, I was regularly reading uh, Mises.org, which if you're not familiar with it, it is a laissez-faire Austrian economics website that tries to promote ideas from the laissez-faire school of thought. Um, Okay. Very, very hardcore against... Oddly enough, they're hardcore against state banks, but they're completely okay with privatized banks, even though the the loaning mechanism hasn't changed at all. Huh. Or at least those those that usually vote with it are okay with the <laughs> with the privatized banks. It it's kind of a back and forth item. That that sounds like it's oddly sounds like an old argument in a way because wasn't state state banks was a big battle like in the like. I want to say mid to late 1800s. And... Oh, it's very old battles. Um, a lot of conservatives use what is called a constructionalist uh, translation of the Constitution, where they specifically build off of what the words that were said in the Constitution says, and anything else that was said isn't covered by anything else anywhere, and that that goes against the law. Oh, okay. okay. It, it is an attempt to avoid tyranny by keeping the law from... Um, from expanding too much at least that's that's the um principles that's the go-to rhetoric yeah yeah okay which we've kind of i think everyone slightly is familiar with because we're all familiar with the founding fathers Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and they had different approaches coming from different states as far as the financial future of our country and and state banks were part of that and Mm -hmm. and taxation that's why i hear you know the taxation word gets used and thrown around so that's interesting. So that, and so and, would, 
Would you consider the taxation without representation? One of the things I've learned um, over the years is how much of a callback that is for the English citizens that were living in the United States at the time, that were living in the colonies and still identified as English. No taxation without representation was not a new call for the American Revolution, but it was a callback to the English Civil Wars, and it was a call for we need representation in Parliament. Interesting. And then in that in sense, I guess, hoping that it would improve their conditions or their, their financial viability as a set of colonies and or, at, you know, and at that time led them to what we now know as the revolution. Um, and OK, so so that being said, that was kind of your investment in the conservative side. Uh, and during that time, were you living in the Dallas area? Were you just in Texas? I was. I was living in the Dallas area. I had a uh, libertarian roommate at the time, and um, we went to a couple John Birch Society meetings. Um, I can say this about the about the conservative movement, and this is something that I've heard. I can't remember where I heard it. They're very good about getting a consistent story through. They're not a lot of there's not a whole lot of question the conservative ideas, which is one of the reasons why you don't see a lot of the debunking happening on the conservative side that you'll see on the liberal side when myths try to get started. But they're very good at keeping their story consistent. They're very good about keeping it intuitive. So it's easy to believe. And I actually do want to go into uh, why do we have so many why can you have both a reasonable conservative and racist conservatives? Like, where do you draw that line and why do they seem to blend so much into each other? No, that's that's a good. Yeah, I've been trying to figure that out myself. Right, right. And the and the kind of masking of that, because it's like w- w- we can support Republicans when they do things that we support. But like mm-hmm. you're saying, when the lines are becoming blurred as to what the Republican agenda is and what parts of it are or may not be racist, you know, it, when that becomes a question, it's kind of hard not to be somebody who's like, I just don't support Republicans then, you know, because the, the muddy waters. And uh, oh, absolutely. That's an intriguing element on our end. And uh, as liberals trying to 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 figure that out i mean if we're talking about mending fences part of it is that we're talking about keeping a a, to some degree strong conservative republican party around Mm. Uh, indeed for sure so if you want to jump into that justin uh where is your start off point for all this oh man uh well start off point like where i did kind of go into where i was at the time or start off point on where i am on questions we just asked oh oh start off point on like what should we do about the blurring line of uh Republicans on some side seem to come off as more um, against the establishment or more racist versus the ones that seem more just like constitutional conservatives? Mm. Well, so here, here's one of the things. Constitutional conservatives rely on some basic ideas that lend themselves to racist ideology. Ah. The laissez-faire, um, I don't know if I'm saying that right, laissez-faire, laissez-faire. Free, free market type. Yeah, yeah. They'll, they'll yeah. Get, our, yeah. our listeners will get what you're saying. Yeah. That, that way of framing things, it's very intuitive for Christians because you have the invisible hand. That's the hand of God moving the world to be more just. Yeah. Peop, that's an easy, intuitive line to believe. If you already believe God is the ruler of the world and is going to make everything okay with just that faith and hard work, then that's an easy go-to line. 
um, one of one of the things that made me conservative wasn't just my upbringing. I mean, my dad was a Southern Baptist pastor or uh, went to school as one. My, I and Texas isn't ex- or Missouri, where I had previously lived, aren't exactly known as liberal bastions. No, so I everything I was surrounded with was a lot of positive reinforcement for um, Republican for ideas, conservative ideas. Yeah. Um, shit, I lost my train. Oh no, no worries. So, so given that situation, I guess um, since uh, we know that kind of the majority of the people here in Seattle and a lot of the people that listen to who've reached out, kind of are leaning on the liberal side and and are more just trying to keep pace with what's going on because so much is happening. Uh, what transitioned occurred with you living in Dallas, still surrounded by conservatives, to, to move towards the liberal spectrum? What what series of events or things? And some of the things were very conser- were very conservative motives. Uh, I was a practicing Christian at the time, and I decide and all this talk about diving into the Constitution, seeing what the f- founders said, made me take a look at my faith and say, okay, what did Jesus say? What did Jesus specifically have to say? I looked into church history. I started learning that the early Christians, one of the reasons why Romans did have a problem with them when they did, because it wasn't consistent, when they did have problems with the Christians, part of that was that Christians would not serve in the military. It was against their their translation of their beliefs to go to war. And that was a huge part of you are a Roman citizen because you have because you have been in the military. This is what makes you one of us. Right. Yeah. Sacrifice or or at least. exactly. It's a sh- it's a shared it's a shared experience and a shared sacrifice. That okay. So you you're you're in this too. You've you've done your work. You've earned your place. And there there's something to be said about having having civil institutions that do that even if you don't go with the war side of it that common experience is huge yeah yeah but christians didn't want christians were not going to do war so i started looking at the conservative war machine i started looking at democrat war machine because the history the history is not really great on either of our on either of our major parties for for sure And I mean, even if you just take like the Ken Burns documentary on Vietnam right now as a mm-hmm. small kind of perspective point of one point of that, you'll see conservatives and Democrats, you know, fumbling the ball there. And oh, absolutely, and absolutely, conducting war abroad with kind of little regard for what the consequences were. And and I think even though that was forty years ago or whatnot, uh, we still are feeling those effects in in our politics and in how we conduct war and. And and yeah, and I think I think it's relevant too in the sense that you said yeah, it's neither party has a clean record as far as that. But uh, continuing that, so you you saw the the war the warring factions, and so that led you. To- I saw the backing of this in the church, and I saw I saw that the early that the early Christians they didn't call themselves Christians. To call yourself a Christian is to align yourself as being on an equal standing with Christ. Oh, okay. That's heretical. Mm-hmm. I, so I stopped calling myself a Christian. And the moment I stopped doing that, the communities that I had grown up in um, turned mean. They, they didn't get just a little, hey, 
can you talk me through what you're doing? They didn't. They weren't worried about that. They got straight up condescending. They got they got isolationist, and people who I had been around all my life suddenly didn't want anything to do with me. Okay. Well, that and that, that kind of drove me out of the church. Um, and then and then we get to Ayn Rand, who's the other conservative source. Oh, yeah. Because Ayn Rand, it doesn't get pointed out a lot, but Ayn Rand despised war. Ayn Rand did not believe men should be paid below what they're worth. Mm-hmm. Um, for all of his failings, she actually went along with uh, one of the lines that Henry Ford did at the time, which was, I would never... Hi- I believe in paying a man what he's worth, and I would never hire the minimum man. Mm, okay. So I started taking a look at that. I became very, very convinced, though, of conservative ideology. I was looking for – I was in self, a self-improvement mode of thinking mm-hmm. because I realized, oh, no, my kid – if I have kids, they'll pick up all my bad habits. I better work on this. No, I totally understand that. <laughs> and – um so my finances were terrible. I had grown up poor, uh, but everybody kept telling me about Rich Dad, Poor Dad as a book, as a source. And it is a it is a very intuitive book, and it is a very hopeful book in some ways, but it is a piece of conservative propaganda, Yeah, whether I... it's intended to be or not. I mean, people say propaganda, and they assume that it's lies, but really propaganda is just – the art of trying to convince somebody of something. Oh, okay. Yeah, um, when I was 18, I, my friends, or some of them are still a part of it, they were part of this uh, MLM called Primerica, and mm-hmm. they definitely used that book as their basis for um, how can we become better, and this is how you can take your current situation and do the most with it, because you know, getting a job for 40 years and wanting to retire is BS. Don't do that. And it's very intuitive and it's very hopeful. Mm-hmm. I find it funny that the conservative, the laissez-faire conservatives who are really backing free market, and that's the reason that they're there, are people who believe that it is just it is just that the poor have doubted themselves for too long. The poor have been giving, have been relying on other people's strengths too much to rely on their own strengths. It is a belief that that strength is within them to rise up. And they only need to cut that. They only need to cut off the government. They only need to cut off all of that help, and that that's what's going to really bring them up. It's reinforced by the Christians who want to who want to completely ignore the point of the Book of Job and completely mm. ignore several verses in the Bible that say things like uh, the race goes not to the swift. Oh, okay. Um. <laughs> well. There- there's there's huge contradictions, but they're contradictions that that are very intuitive for somebody who believes in an all powerful God authority figure who's going to be there for you when you have that. It's very intuitive with when you want to believe in it is the individual that matters and no, nothing else can really get in the way. It goes with the hero stories that we repeat over and over again throughout American culture. Okay. Well, so then, when you're when you're going through this transition of 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 ideology in your mind and in your actions in Dallas, Texas, 
where do you now find uh, people with the common uh, thought? And do you have representatives in your either city government or state government that you know of that uh, kind of have the same ideals as you? Or, or is that the kind of lost cause of the middle ground these days? Is is I left. don't consider myself middle ground. I have gone far left. Far I, left. Okay. Nice. I um I do not, I do not see. I had to get I, as I started looking into, uh, that was another thing for Mine Rand. Her praise of reason. So because she praised reason, I started trying to learn reason. I became fascinated by how propaganda works and how people convince each other. I spent about three years mm. trying to learn everything I could about how do you convince people of things? How do you change their minds? How how do you do this? And a lot about critical thinking. And the more critical thinking I looked at and the more I got into, okay, so how do we know this? How do we say this? Every source I kept coming to started steadily leaning towards, actually, the liberals have something going on here. <laughs> For the sociologists to be lying about these things, they would have to fake this, this, and this. All of their opponents would have to fake this. Mm -hmm. it, it would have to go along with it. Like The power structures that are involved for the liberal conspiracy that several conservatives really do have ingrained and believed in. And at the time, I did believe that there was a liberal, that there was a liberal conspiracy. Like, like, the, is that the fake, the beginnings of the trappings of like fake media, like that whole thing? Oh yeah, fake media was a, fake media was a big thing. Now, as a libertarian, and I, so when I say I was a conservative, yes, I went to John Birch Society meetings, and John Birch Society is so conservative they sometimes get labeled as a hate group uh, <laughs> because that that free market that's so that same free market ideology of that belief in hope and that cut back all the government also means that if the market is going to fix everything, then. If the government just gets out of the way, then that means that anybody who has asked for help from the government to get out of poverty is making this problem worse. That means that anytime our courts, anytime our courts react instead of the market, that's making things worse. So you start aiming at overturning Supreme Court cases that are protections for racial minorities that are protection mm. for genders and you start looking at no it's just free choice the market is going to settle all of this of course if the market does settle it they call it uh, they say that whiny liberals destroyed a good business rather than saying hey rather than saying they voted with their dollars because it's it's not as convenient and and one of the biggest things that i learned from being a conservative and to becoming a liberal is this whole notion that uh, the other side doesn't really mean it, that they are trying to pull one over you, on you, is probably one of the biggest mistakes we make. Like, mm. it's... It is one thing to... There are going to be a few people that are obvious hypocrites. There are going to be people that are playing that... But honestly, they're not the majority. Yeah. <clears throat> and we don't exactly choose what convinces us. Yeah, I did not. I I did not pick to be a conservative at the time, and I could not now choose to be a conservative again. There would be a whole series. It would be a whole journey. It wouldn't be just one thing. I would need to run into things where I was seeing inconsistencies with liberals. 
Okay. Well, well, now that we know that you've gone that far left, you know, because you, you gave us that information, we don't want to make any assumptions politically on the spectrum for anybody, <laughs> but anybody that wants to willingly give their position is always welcome. Um, that being said, uh, there's all this talk about Texas one day turning blue and about registering minorities there as the, as the changing population occurs, about the cities specifically of Dallas and, and Austin. Um, do you feel then there is representation, I guess, kind of to my earlier question for that, is the, is the left moving forward in Texas or is it seem stale or falling back or what, what has been your, so there is, so now I'm going to have a limited context here, but I have, but I have been, I have attended young Democrat meetings. I'm friends with one of the four, with one of the former leaders, an awesome person by the name of, uh, Joy Parks. Cool. And, um, she she talks about this sometimes. There's a lot of the same, oh, Hillary will win, this will win, the emails won't matter. There's there's a lot of people trying to talk things up, but I am not convinced by it. Mm-hmm. I think that there is a lot of wishful thinking. Now, Dallas itself, Dallas proper, is one of the most – is one of the most liberal areas in Texas. Okay. Now, I mean, it's Texas, so we're not talking you don't have to go that liberal to be very liberal. No, I totally DFW, understand how you're framing that. Exactly. Yeah, the DFW area as a whole has has a lot. The the uh, Dallas police chief actually releases all of his police data so that third parties can go in and look at it and make sure that we're not racial profiling. And as while surrounding cities do have not done the same step and based on like news out of McKinney with the uh, black girl who got slammed last year. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, based on, based on some of the things I've seen, the surrounding cities are not doing as well, but Dallas itself, the black police chief has praised Black Lives Matter. He makes sure to release things. He made uh, the inconsistencies with police work a call to action. He said, look, guys, you want these problems solved? I do, too, as a black man. And he said, um, he said, join us, sign up, fill out applications. We need you here. And I I honestly have nothing but praise for uh, Dallas's police chief because he even made sure that the force went, that the entire police force here has gone through de-escalation training similar to what you would have to do in the military right. where okay. most police forces aren't doing that. Right, exactly. They're And uh, they're conducting themselves in what would consider even a, a, I mean, a war environment, you know, and are able to mm-hmm. do that. So it should be a policy that police can follow. Yeah, Absolutely. Our mayor... Our mayor is very liberal, but he's very um, – he's more traditional Democrat liberal in that he wants to – he wants to make sure he can win. So I'm – all right. I said I'm far left. I'm going to narrow in a little bit more. Okay. I did support Bernie. I still liked Hillary. I don't think that she, that most of the things said wrong about her were said. We're in agreement there. Think, do it. We're in agreement there. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I, I do think that um, she was too cautious. I do think that there's a lot of reliance on on um, 
there's a lot of reliance on big money, and there's a practical reason for that. When One of the things that I was looking for as a libertarian was how do I really convince people? So I started looking at where do their arguments have a point, and I still try to do that for conservatives. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, since the Tea Party takeover, and I'm, it's, it's kind of a bitter spot for me because, like I said, I was in Ron Paul's uh, – in Ron Paul's group. A lot of the people from Ron Paul's group feel like that got hijacked. And oh, okay. that the Tea Party started out of that, but that a lot of the big names that were causing problems to begin with did come in and kind of take that over and push their voice into it. There was there wasn't ever a whole lot of tr- trust for Sarah Palin in the among the Ron Paul people, and like Bernie, um, Ron Paul did draw a lot of independence. So take that take that with what you will because some some conservatives did not see me as conservative i did not take things on faith i did not take things because the american christians association said i should believe them as something to believe but wanted to actually hash questions out back to that uh critical thinking idea that you were talking Mm -hmm. about yeah and that's something i i've always kind of uh, put forth is that that needs to be the skill that's taught the most. Oh yeah, for sure. And oh yeah, at a younger age too. Like I almost think my official first critical thinking class was either senior year or freshman year in college. Mm. And here's the funny thing: that really should be earlier. If you're teaching science without teaching experiment design, which is the critical thinking process. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Then you're not actually teaching science. And there's there's a lot of critiques from even science writers about how we ask science questions with yes or no questions, but we don't ask kids why they work. So they don't have an understanding of any of the mechanisms underneath. And that's just a way that we usually frame questions because it's easy to do in bulk. I've I've learned that there's usually design reasons for the problems that persist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And oh. and breaking down those things is how you kind of can gather a solution. Yeah. It can be. Also understanding why those problems were set up the way they were, because sometimes they fix a worse problem. Sometimes they were supposed to fix a problem and didn't fix it, but you have to understand the reasoning to where this was. It can be, it can be a mess. And actually, so my, my understanding of local politics is, is limited because I try to focus more on what is the history, what is the general underlying idea. Yeah, well, I mean, the story that you had about the Dallas police chief, I mean, that's local politics. That's actually kind of what we're getting at. Yeah, and it kind of goes into, I got into a conversation on Facebook about how local politics has affected how our race is going now, but specifically Mm -hmm. why um, communities in the South are getting dicked over by um, development policies and why places in the North aren't. And And there's so when I was a conservative, there was actually a really big push um, from conservatives to start using this strategy of run for the smallest office available. Mm. You got all these very hardcore conservatives repeating that mantra because over time, yeah, your your first break in there isn't going to be very much but over time you get enough of those little spaces those little seats that nobody cares about oh yeah it becomes something you can leverage and i really want to see liberals start using some of the strategies that we're having our asses kicked with oh yeah i think indivisible is um that's part of the resistance 
where they're telling people how they can run for office and stuff. And we've been saying on the show plenty of times, like if you can run for office, like city council, school board, and and especially Mm -hmm. in small towns, too, where there's a small town here in Seattle. um, I believe it was Everett or close to Everett where a person won a spot on city council with five votes. Like he got five more votes than the other person. So. And well, not even in just little cities. The thing is that these. So, while conservatives do currently have groups that mobilize voters, mm-hmm. they have news rings that say, "Hey, this guy's running here. We need reinforcement here." They're very good at coordinating that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fact is that most people don't actually show up for the small elections. There that is, is true. If you take interest in those at all, and this was why conservatives said to, to aim at that, if you start taking interest in that at all, you are already making progress. Indeed. I can definitely say like back when, because I've lived in Seattle for about nine years, but I can say for my first five years here, I did not pay attention to local politics at all. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until $15 minimum wage came about and uh, I was on the wrong side of history for that one. <laughs> so it was... It, okay, so you, you, you were fighting on for some conservative ideas too, so you yeah. know a little bit of where I'm coming <laughs> exactly. from. It, it's intuitive. You want you want to believe that we can all do it by ourselves, but the fact is, we never did. Right, it's that, all interdependent, not independent on each other's things. Absolutely, absolutely, and that is one of the things that um, has become reinforced as I've become more and more liberal. Because even as I became liberal, that was a small step. That was a okay. Well, what point do conservatives have? Mm-hmm. Okay, well, what's the specific mechanism that makes this work? What's the specific mechanism that makes this not work? And just asking questions over and over again. And actually, to this day, one of the best uh, political books I've read was by a man who served in Bush's cabinet. He was extremely critical afterwards. But um, uh, Francis Fukuyama uh, wrote this massive two-part book on the history of political order and political decay and it is a wonderful breakdown starting with evolutionary psychology starting with what do we know about the science of decision making what do anthropologists know what do historians know it's really good really a good book i'll have to check that one out and listeners check that one out too as well um well so now that you you've uh you've made the kind of move to the left and uh we've we've been on this kind of hunt now for uh some type of representative on the national spectrum for the left that Hmm. we haven't seen before uh what do you see in the party on the on the grand scheme uh do you see any uh rock stars that we haven't noticed that maybe are uh 2020 candidate or are you like us in the sense that uh, we have to wait and see and we're not really sure where it's going to come out of? Unfortunately, I think I am a little sure. Um, the Democratic Party is still angry at Ross Perot. Wow. Okay. They still blame him for Al Gore not winning. Oh. That is a long established – or not – I'm sorry, not Ross R- Perot, Ralph Nader. Ralph Nader. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I voted for I... him twice, so <laughs> this oh, is this, okay. yeah, this is personal. This is personal. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, it's all right. It's all right. 
several Democrats still get angry about them because they do have so they do have some strategic points. Right. We're getting our asses handed to us by big money. Mm-hmm. But we're trying to play like our our opponents. And so the the idea there are things you've heard me say there are things that I want to see us copy from the conservatives. The Koch brothers' idea of making uh, blanket points, defining what what it is they actually want, and then just rapid fire doing them. Mm-hmm. That's really hard to defend against, and we can use that. Yeah. Uh, the conservative, but the biggest thing I want to see us take from conservatives is what happened after the 2008 election. So there was a lot of unrest in the Republican Party when Obama won. I, as as a conservative, sincere conservative at the time, was very was very depressed. Oh, I actually no. backed off from the political scene and started diving into kind of John Locke treaties on government, trying. Mm. To get into get back to the basics because when you're dealing with the people, it gets so personal and it can get really hard to step back from. So I I had to take that move and I, I I'm actually at that point a little bit a little bit right now. So I keep I periodically will do that as my as my reset. That when the up close gets too personal, I get back and look into underlying basics and the generic things so that I can depersonalize it again so that I can come back to it later. No, no, that totally makes sense. Um, but so the conservative party 2008 was, was in turmoil. The tea party started moving in with the, with absolute fury at the, at the Republican national convention. They, wanted something better and so they started really running against them saying you're not conservative enough you start seeing the tea party rise you start seeing laissez-faire beyond where the research says it works because mm-hmm. there, there there is an extent where the where a market can work but not when you not when you exclude there's also an extent where it stops working Okay. And it's that it's that that little bit of line where they where they couldn't see it stop working, where it was the faults of the individual, not the faults of the system itself. No matter because they could point to outliers. Hint: if outliers are the re, are your justification, then your system is broken. Yeah. Outli- outliers is not what your system is producing. It's in spite of it. So you're not trying to say that they're going to run Al Gore, are you? <laughs> um, I, I don't think, well, one, I don't think Al Gore wants to run, but I don't think that the Democrat Party has itself gotten out of that mode of things. We want to include people, but we also want to blame people. Yeah. We don't want, we don't want to have conversations about really reconciling. And to be fair, when I'm talking about what happened in the Republican Party, they weren't talking either. It was a hostile takeover. Oh, the yeah. Tea Party took out long-standing Republicans who had good records. They went hard after them. Yeah. And I, I've learned recently that the moderates had started being cut down during the Clinton era and during the Reagan era. So that had that. This has been more of a continuation than something that necessarily started there, but it really got intense, and it did take a lot of people stepping in and saying, no, we can't do this. Right now, what is happening is on the left, 
you have a lot of liberals saying, um, I don't want anything to do with the DNC anymore. You have a lot of anger and resentment. You have a lot, you do have a lot of people who did buy into the stories about Hillary. You do have a lot of people who did buy into, um, and to just just a lot of the rumors going around, right? And and the ability to then support that party after that situation is hard, and trying to convince those people as well as get a candidate that they can trust outside of the Hillary faction, whether the stories are true or not. Yeah, a absolutely. lot of a lot of people believed them. Yeah, and the Democrats need to have that conflict. Liberals overall need to have a real conflict. Need to have a conversation in it and not a pleasant one where we can so that we can come to a resolution because until we actually really start talking to each other until we start really looking this in the face i don't think we're going to move beyond it and when i say i don't think we're going to move beyond it it took eight years for the conservatives right. to actually run somebody who stood a chance and he was batshit it is batshit crazy <laughs> it's great he was in line with what they were saying yes and what you're saying in a in kind of like the in in between the lines thing is 2020 may be a lost cause. Like, if we don't get our acts I, together, I, I think that I think that a lot there's a lot happening with 2020. I do think that um, there's a lot of galvanization for for Trump being in there, resistance is always more popular. People mm -hmm. like being the underdog. And it sometimes when things get bad enough, it wakes people up. But then you have people who, like I was for so long, raised in so much privilege that you cannot see it, that you cannot step back and say, now, wait a minute, this doesn't follow the experimental norms. This, the, if, if this is true for more people and not just me, then the court numbers shouldn't say this. Ta taking a step back from that to when I talked about that Christian experience where mm -hmm. my four faithful reasons denying Christianity and then being denied by modern Christianity, that was a wake up call for me. Unless mm. you run into something that says your world is not working you don't really get a whole lot of reasons to question it. It's just, come on, grow up, go with it, it works. No, totally. I, I grew up as a Christian, and then I prayed for my dad not to die, and then my dad died. That started me along the path to become an atheist. Mm. Yeah. That's why there's guardrails, man. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Bounce off of them. Um, well, man, I think we've made our way mostly through this episode. I really appreciate, uh, you taking the time to, to give us your view and, and talk about that. I have to check in with my co-host, uh, Chaz here and, uh, see if there's anything you have left on the agenda or did you have a pretty open one for our guests? No, I had a pretty open one. I think... I think we win over a lot of good things. There's a lot of resources to check out, and I think we. And what I really liked about it is how we understand how the, the way that we come across our views and stuff usually isn't our fault. And once we get to the point where we can think more critically, we need to have more of those exchanges to think critically. So hopefully, and we'll... I do. I do want to actually point to something hopeful because what mm -hmm. I've been saying hasn't sounded very hopeful because convincing people isn't a straight line if, unless they're looking um start mm -hmm. learning design oh yeah there's 
there's an excellent book, uh, The Design of Everyday Things, that was written by a cognitive scientist who was studying how people make mistakes. And he was originally making it as a cognitive science book about mistakes, but it's it's a staple for the design world. Um, start looking into design, because as you understand good design principles, you start understanding where different solutions come from. You start getting really good at identifying the specific mechanisms that are blocking us, and you start finding ways and creative ways around them. I really do believe that that is where our answer forward's going to be. I do think that there may that the galvanized resistance may put may put up a little bit of fight. Mm-hmm. I'm right. not convinced I'm not convinced that it's going to be this massive takeover because I think they underestimate the sincerity of conservatives. They think that it's all a bunch of fake racists people that are there because they're racist, not because they actually believe in it or they're there because of of some superficial reason, not not right. that they could ever meet that, and that happens from conservatives. Conservatives all the time uh, will say that I'm just a a, a miltard was the recent insult. Oh goodness! But, <laughs> wow. but somebody who's either duped or just not very sincere. Oh, I can we see. Have, yeah, yeah, I can see where both sides are coming from from that. And yeah, that's why I've been doing this time to take more time to try to understand how conservatives think. Because I went to school for game design, and as I've gotten older and looked into design more, I definitely see how you want to present something. You want, like, the word intuitive always comes to mind, and an intuitive mm -hmm. is really has to be on you taking how people make associations to things and making sure they just naturally know how to use it based on previous associations. And Absolutely. if you can do that uh, through other things and trying to make, that's why I like using analogies a lot, because high concept things are usually hard if you use all the big words that even though that sufficiently explains it, they won't know. But if you can uh, think of If something. you can make it easier to, if you can make it intuitive, that's where the human brain excels. It doesn't mm -hmm. excel at critical thinking. We excel at heuristic thinking. Mm -hmm. That is very true. Well, uh, we appreciate your time, Justin. We'll, uh, you can hold on the line while we conduct the final moments of our show here. Uh, we are uh, always available on the Twitter sphere. You can get me at C Town Mayor. You can get my boy Chaz at C R S I I. And uh, Justin, is there anywhere on the internet you would like people to check you out at? Right now, I am still most active on Facebook. Unfortunately, there's a million different uh, Justin Dixons. However, you can search by my email, so dynamicnerd at yahoo.com. Awesome. And if you search by my email, that should lead you straight to me. Cool, cool. And they can uh, conduct the conversation there or by email. Speaking of email, we have an email box here. It's hylbox at gmail.com. That's free, just like these episodes, for you to get a hold of us. And with that, we're going to play our exit song. Thanks again to Justin in Dallas. Appreciate your time, man. Chaz. It's been nice learning how everyone's living. Yes, you too. Have a good one. You too. You too, Justin. All right. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm.